Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. I'm Leo Robertson. I find artists of all varieties I find interesting. They're usually writers, they don't have to be. And uh, we talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything. We lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. As always, we start with the latest of what's going on over at Aphotic Realm. Uh, issue number seven is out now, it's gruesome. Who doesn't love over-the-top 80s horror films? A punk band fights off a horde of possessed fans at a local concert. A makeout session at the cemetery takes a turn for the worst. Slashers, critters, demons, gore, hairspray. The 80s horror B-movie aesthetic is what issue 7 gruesome is all about, so do check that out. The Realm also has its own merch store right on the Aphotic Realm site itself. Uh, you can buy t-shirts, beanies, caps and tank tops. And if you check out the new Aphotic Realm Instagram, you can see yours truly sporting an Aphotic Realm t-shirt uh, in the dark grey heather colour. I think it's great. And uh, there's loads of cool other merch. I'm sure I will get other stuff too. And uh, I hope you will as well. Please do check out the merch in the store. Finally, I hope you will consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon. As a patron, you'll get early access to podcast episodes such as this one. Um, you can also uh, get digital downloads of all Aphotic books as well. So do check that out. Please consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon also. I wrote this thing. I hope you like it. Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo. Our guest this episode. Uh, you know her and love her. Her books are And Her Smile Will Untether the Universe, Pretty Mary's All in a Row, uh, The Rust Maidens, her debut novel out with Trepidatio Publishing, which just won the Bram Stoker Award, and her forthcoming chapbook, The Invention of Ghosts, out with Nightscape in November. Uh, she's the author with the coolest name in horror fiction. It's Gwendolyn Kiss. I hope you enjoy our chat. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about because we've got this uh, Cronenberg anthology that should be out, I think, in the next few months. I believe um, so, yeah. So that's really exciting. Um, and I want to know about your, you know, relationship to Cronenberg's work and favorite, favorite films of his. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan for years. I, I love The Brood. The Brood is one that I, that I absolutely adore. It's such a strange body horror film and I, I love body horror as a writer it's sort of like my my horror bread and butter it's kind of where I always go back to and and I I love all the things you can do with it mm -hmm. and I think the brood does so much so well it's got the it's got you know the monstrous feminine and the scary children and it's such an interesting way of examining a breakdown of a family which is sadly something that a lot of people have experience with either in their own lives, you know, or, or people they're close to and mm -hmm. to see it through that kind of body horror lens and, and done in that way, that that's always been a big, a big inspiration for me. And then the other one that I love 
from Cronenberg in particular is The Fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that is also that I actually don't really like the original The Fly, which I feel like I, I shouldn't say aloud because I know it's still a favorite of a lot of people. So I had put off seeing Cronenberg's The Fly because I figured it would be at least somewhat in the same vein. And it's not at all, obviously. It's, it's the, other than the transformation, that's basically the only thing that's similar. And, and again, I think that one is like a breakdown of a, of a relationship as well. And I think it's interesting to see such human experiences played out through this body horror lens. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I wanted to ask you about body horror also, of course, because I do see it, it crops up in your stories a lot. Um, and I've seen you writing various posts about it as well. What is it about body horror that intrigues you? I think it's because it is so relatable to everyone. We all live in these, in these bodies that don't always, you know, things don't always go the way we want them to, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and provided you live a long life, which no one is guaranteed that anyways, you know, your body will age. And as it ages, there's all these problems that come with that or, and I, I think it's something that's so relatable for everyone and to have something as personal as your body turning against you does seem like the, the ultimate horror. It seems like the, the thing that, you know, you can't escape it. It's not like a, a ghost. If you leave the haunted house, you can get away from it or the monster that's chasing you through the woods. And if, if you can get in the car and drive fast enough, you can get away from it. But again, your, your body, that's your, your stuck with that like it or not i i think i know the answer from your fiction as well but do you do you think that there's something particularly difficult about inhabiting a woman's body i i would like to say no but i would say yes i mean as much as there's of course the political level of, of how women's bodies are much more likely to be regulated than than men's bodies but even beyond that there's the fact that, you know, giving birth, that's always been something that scares me. I don't have children, but but the idea of, of birth, it, it's it's very violent. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, people say it's beautiful. It is beautiful, but it's beautiful in a very violent, bloody way. So I think that there is there is that unique horror of, of being female in, in a body that can do these wonderful, you know, wondrous things, but it's also very, very scary at the same time. Do you think that there's something particularly cathartic about stories about the horror of having a body for me yes definitely i i think because from the time of like adolescence and you know that coming of age and and puberty and everything you you have this idea of of how much the body can change and and what it can do and i i think having films and stories that express that have at least for me as a reader and of 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 literature and then a viewer of a film, it has been very cathartic because it's this expression of something that I can be like, okay, I'm not the only one that feels this way. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's the answer. I talked to a lot of horror writers and I think it is the same, that it's definitely the most visceral of the lenses to look at problems through. I like that, visceral. That's a, that's a good word for it because, mm-hmm. because it very much is. It is that immediacy of body horror. And yeah, I, I think that it's... um. Yeah, it's cathartic for that reason. I think I, it, probably my own interest in literature is the same. Is I feel like it's it's telling me all the things. It, it kind of confirms the things that you think about the world that you don't hear people saying. You kind of bef- before I see something articulated in a story, I might be wandering around a little frustrated, thinking, "Why is nobody talking about this?" 
I, I do think that's interesting, just touching on that, of like, I think horror in general is more likely to talk about things that maybe no other genre wants to talk about because it, it is a genre where we look at things that are uncomfortable. And that's mm. not something that, that by the nature of, of science fiction and fantasy or romance or literary that they always do. They can do that. That's certainly not taking that, that away from them. But I think horror by its nature will look at the uncomfortable. And so those things that we're afraid to express are more likely, we're more likely to find them expressed in horror. So I really like that. I think that's a really good point. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, I hadn't thought of it that way because you can enter into, you know, you've already entered into a contract with somebody once you, once you package something as horror, that you're going to give them something scary so you can perhaps explore things much deeper. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. So the piece of yours that I read most recently was The Rust Maidens. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's it's really, uh, it's really beautiful. I, I remember reading that you were, uh, I think you were reading Jeffrey Eugenides around the time that you were writing it. I actually read that years ago, but it, okay. it, I do love, I love The Virgin Suicides. I, I watched the film when I was very young and it, mm. it really is like, it, it was one of those, again, coming of, coming of age and kind of, even though it's not a horror story, even though it's obviously very literary, it does feel almost like a horror story. And then just watching these girls sort of slip away one by one. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that was definitely, that's definitely one that I, I do love. Well, I, I could, I could, you know, feel the echoes of that there, but of course it is an original work in your voice and, um, you know, it, it, it must have been quite difficult to handle a narrative in which it is, as you say, watching characters slip away and not being able to do anything about it. It's kind of a tension that's set up from the very beginning, right? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. It is, that's... Uh... And it was sad. I mean, I I was very sad writing a lot of the Rust Maidens. I'm happy that a lot of people it's resonated with them though, because at the time when I was first writing it, I'm like, wow, this is this the story's making me pretty sad to write it. I, I hope that it's not just a sad sack story and that's it. So I'm glad when people say that it's it's something that has resonated with them because it it is sad to talk about these you know, a city that has slipped away and people that have slipped away and, and kind of those feelings of, of helplessness that we have that we don't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. So tell me about Cleveland, Ohio. Is that where you've always lived? No, no, I actually, I've actually never really lived in Cleveland. I did okay. go to school in Cleveland. I went to Case Western Reserve in, in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time there and I'd been, you know, I spent time there even when I wasn't in college. And I actually, I grew up about a 90 minute drive south of Cleveland in a small town, uh, rather than that kind of urban landscape. Which might be a times why, like Denton Street, where where everything is, almost has a small town feel, even though it is urban and it is close to the city. There's also this sense of the kind of close knit community of of this particular like block of houses or a couple blocks of houses. Mm -hmm. So I do love Cleveland. I'm always worried that doesn't come across in the book because I do really love the city, and I think at times I kind of a. Uh, kind of was a little harsh on it and I didn't mean to be but at the same time it, it is a city that has a very long and at times difficult history of mm -hmm. you know having a lot of industry but that industry you know being very 
you know, polluting to the water, to the air, and then having all those jobs slip away and, and still having a lot of the pollution in, in the area and not having the jobs. And, and again, that kind of sense of, of hopelessness at times. But there's a lot of good in Cleveland, too, obviously. And I, I do think by the end of the book that I hope that comes across at least a little bit. Well, see, I thought that... Um... In order to pay such close attention to a city, that's a kind of demonstration of love, no matter what you have to say about it. I really like that. That's a, that's a very nice point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Anytime you're going to go that you know deep level with exploring something in the history of a place, that by itself does show a love for it. So thank you. That makes me feel better that I wasn't from <laughs> Cleveland. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm 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 glad I could help. It's really it's a it's a beautiful story, and to me, somebody who's never been there you do communicate a very strong sense of place you know it's um it it really does i i know this one is translating to a wide audience of course but you know it, it definitely definitely resonated with me as well um thank you so much mm -hmm. um i think also i mean i know that shirley jackson is a big influence of yours right yes yes definitely mm -hmm. can you um is it see I didn't really understand her for a while until recently I read her story, The Summer People. Do you know it? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. And then it just kind of clicked with me and I was like, oh, okay. She's really capturing that weird, like, unwritten rules of society that alienate people who don't know them when they break them kind of feel. Um, yes, yes. That's a really apt description of her work in general. There is this sense of, and I think that that's appropriate. She's from New, she was from New England, and New England's got this very specific. Even though you know, I'm, I'm, you're not American, but even as an American, there's still a sense of New England has this very different kind of, you know, sensibility because you know it was, it was the first area to be colonized whenever the European settlers came over, and so it's almost got its own code. So I think that that is interesting the way you just described it because. I think Shirley Jackson never felt like she quite got into the rhythm of that. And that in some ways she was always crossing these boundaries, whether deliberately or not. And, and there are always these repercussions. And yes, the summer people is great for that. I, I think the first time I read it, I was like, I don't know about that story. And then I went back and reread it and I'm like, okay, yes, I actually really love that story. It was one of those types that I'm like, wow, that's, it's very unsettling. And, and you really, you really described it well of like you're breaking these rules you don't even know are rules and the repercussions that that has yeah yeah well no I'm 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 glad you agree with that um but it, it really once I picked up on that I just I saw it everywhere and it's it's such a timeless principle <laughs> like I just I got back from holiday recently and somebody was like oh hey Leo are you back from holiday I said yeah and they said on a Thursday and I was like oh oh okay I guess <laughs> I get like I guess you all never have come back from holiday on a Thursday and I was supposed to know that and now I make you feel uncomfortable. Like <laughs> Right? And I think that this is I think Shirley Jackson's work is even better now because there's even more of these weird rules that have been created in like online environments where we've never really set up any kind of etiquette and yet somehow people think that there is a kind of etiquette that it's like you're supposed to do exactly this, you know, behave in this way and it's like nobody ever taught us that and now we're interacting with even more people who have these you know, specific ideas of, of, of the proper way of doing things. Because yeah, if you would have told me you came back on a Thursday, that wouldn't have even like been anything to me. I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. But to somebody else, you're right. It's like, you must come back. I don't know on a Sunday. Is that the proper day to come? Back? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
we don't come back from holiday on Thursdays around here. I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, whoops. I just, I don't pay that close attention to what other people are doing with their holidays, like, at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, God, it's bizarre. I, I get one of those a day. I, I, I think another one was, like, we, we were all talking about how many colourful jackets you own. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. You've discovered it now. There's no going back. I, I own a lot of colourful jackets. It's just, I, I don't know. It's, um, it's funny because I think that other people inform you that you're an outsider. I don't know that you've necessarily, you can't feel like an outsider to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's an interesting point that it's other people pointing out like, hey, why are you doing this weird thing that you should have known better than to do? Mm -hmm. But yeah, like it's it is because you're right. You can't really or hopefully you don't feel like an outsider to yourself going back to that body horror. I suppose you could. Mm. But like, you're right. It does tend to be a, a role that other people assign on you rather than one that you're sort of self assigning. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back to your point about the Internet, I think that's like. That must be such fertile ground for new stories, like the Shirley Jackson equivalent of interacting on the internet. Um, how are you navigating it? <laughs> I don't know. Some days I'm like, I think I'm doing okay with all of this. And then other days I'm like, man, if I wasn't a writer, if I wasn't a writer and I didn't want to like network as a writer, I'm always like, I don't think I'd have social media. There's like a few people like I... Yeah, that sounds terrible because it's not that I haven't met some great people that I'd like to keep in contact with, but honestly, mm -hmm. I'm somebody, I'm, I would be fine with like sending letters the old fashioned way, <laughs> like to escape some of the like weirdness of social media and how uncomfortable it can be and how people can just, you know, like you said, you'll suddenly break a rule you didn't even know was a rule or cross some line that you didn't even know was there. And and, mm -hmm. and obviously this is not saying like, you know, there are, there are people who clearly are trolls. That, that's all they do is try to cross lines. But there are other times, like you said, like, oh, you own too many colorful jackets <laughs> or something that really is truly innocuous, not something that like, you know, somebody's trolling somebody and it's like, that's a very different situation. But it's these weird things. That then you're almost like, wait a minute, is this, is this something I should have known? Am I, have I missed something? Mm -hmm. And it's like, probably not. It's probably just these, these odd lines that people draw in like social interaction. <laughs> well, I'm really, I'm really glad to hear somebody else confirm that that's a weird thing to say in the office. But um, yeah, no, I get, I, I get a lot of those. Um, even, <laughs> even today I was told I, I wasn't eating enough at lunch. And then I said, I said, well, I don't really... I said, I don't really do anything. I just get on the bus, then I sit in the office, then I get on a bus and I sit at home. I said, like, in the future, if there are people like me, they'll just be like brains in a jar connected to the internet. Like, there's not much point in me even having a body. I've just got to cart this thing around. Um, Talk about body horror. That's body horror. Yeah, well, that's like, that's like body, that's body joy. You don't, you don't need one, you know? Just, <laughs> it's like, um... Yeah, but I mean, you can imagine how well that went down. I was, I was, you know, it's not, <laughs> I'm not going around making new friends. <laughs> but at the same time, like, I always think it's interesting that if somebody else opens up an awkward conversation, like criticizing how much somebody eats, like, how are you supposed to respond to that? Like, oh my gosh, you're so right. I need to eat way more. Thank you for pointing it out. Like, there's no non-awkward response to that kind of awkward situation so almost sometimes I think it's better to be like listen you you started this I'm going to tell you all the weird thoughts in my head now 
That's a good point. But see, yours was such a writerly response because you were like, what were the motivations between, like, behind the words coming out of their mouth? And it's like, I don't think there were any. I think it was just like, that, that looks small, I'll say that. <laughs> I always say that that's actually a place I struggle as a writer when it's like, your characters always have to have goals. And I'm like, I understand that from, from, a, from a writing perspective, I do. But I'm mm-hmm. always like, I think I know a lot of people who don't really have goals in a day. They don't really have clear motivations it's just like here's this thing and I'm just doing it you know what I mean so it's like that's always a place where as a writer I'm like you know I mean obviously my characters have to have motivations but I don't think that a lot of people necessarily do there is a kind of sense of you just go along with again those rules whatever they are they're sort of unwritten and they're sort of these guides that people follow kind of mindlessly and we all do it to a certain extent this isn't me saying like Mm -hmm. I've never mindlessly followed some social rule throughout the day but I mean that almost makes it scarier that even as someone that I'm aware that this is the way the world is I'm still doing it at times too so Mm -hmm. yeah existential dread (laughs) interesting i hadn't thought about existential dread in those terms like i mean the way i see it is like it takes it takes real time to develop taste in anything so i feel like if you don't like if you like us i mean we we read a lot i mean I, i don't know i used to be really into music but i don't know so much about it anymore so now i'll just listen to whatever the hell pops up on youtube first and then you are becoming you know, like everyone else in that respect, I suppose. But um, everyone has a, a a discipline or a taste or something that they've they've not fully developed. Like now, I'm only kind of learning how to decorate my home. <laughs> They're like, what what do I put on the walls? You know, somebody else would walk in here and see that I was some sort of sheep like philistine. You know. Um, <laughs> It, that is that's a good point though it is like how much of what we're doing is like you're trying to develop this and at, at what point you know does it become your own taste and and when is it just what you're kind of going along with as you're learning so that that's interesting I like that I like kind of thinking of when when that divide would happen mm-hmm. because you for example have a very characteristic and well-developed voice as a writer but I don't suppose that did you notice that happening no no, I didn't. And it, I, I like that you brought that up because I think as writers, we don't know when that happens, but mm-hmm. it does at some point. But when we first start, we do tend to be either, I hate to say this, and this, this might sound so mean to young writers, but almost mm-hmm. voiceless, that it's almost just, you know, Jane woke up, Jane got on the bus. Like it, it feels very standard kind of writing. And mm-hmm. then as time goes on, you sort of, you know, develop into it. And, and so that, yeah, I think that it just happens over time. There's not like one moment where you're like, okay, now I've developed voice as a writer. It, it just sort of happens, you know, as as hopefully you're learning and you're building on those skills. Mm-hmm. So you've, uh, you brought up the idea that you might be okay with writing letters to people. Um, <laughs> so I take it you've decided then that like written fiction is your chosen artistic medium. Yes. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I, I've done other things over the years. I did fashion design for a while. I did filmmaking, but it I, I wasn't very good at those. I mean, I certainly didn't enjoy them like I, I enjoy writing, at least on the average day. Sometimes I think we all hate writing, even even when we love it. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's difficult to... I, I really don't think that... I really believe that anyone who wanted to do this could probably do it. Like, I think if they just put the time in, um, so I'm kind of against 
the typical narratives you see, which are like, oh, I was telling, I was telling fairy tales to my toys. And it's like, well, okay, great. But you don't, I don't think you own this more than anyone else does, you know? Um, I completely agree with that. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't like the idea of like kind of ownership of things like that, especially with storytelling, because that's something we all own in some level. Mm-hmm. But I think your point is your point is interesting in that if somebody was telling fairy tales to, to, to their toys, that just shows that they had a very long time to do it, which still backs up your idea that with enough time and enough practice that everyone could potentially develop their own voice as a writer, that it's just about how much time you put into it rather than this idea that like you own it or you're destined to do it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like I don't, I to this day have not really, I may have demonstrated aptitudes at things, but I don't feel like I've had a calling. Um, It sounds like you tried a few things out before you've settled on writing as well. Do you feel like yeah. it's a calling for you? That's a good, good question. I'd like to say yes. Hopefully, yes. I like the idea that I have always been a storyteller, so maybe telling stories in some fashion. Mm-hmm. But I also I struggle with this idea of calling anyways because I think that, like you said, dedicate yourself to certain things and, and you know you may be able to develop it. Now, I'm not real tall, for example. I'd probably never be a great basketball player, per mm-hmm. se. But but honestly, if I had wanted to play basketball, I, prob- I could be better than I am now. I mean, there are definitely ways that we can, you know, there might be certain limitations that make it so that we aren't as good at something. But I think that, you know, there are a lot of things we can explore as human beings and maybe even could or should, given the right opportunities. So... I'd like to say that being a storyteller is my calling, but maybe there's something else out there that I'd enjoy too. So, I mean, it's it's kind of like a balance for me is not wanting to be like, oh, this is what I'm destined to do. Plus, that sounds so pretentious when people say things like that anyways. <laughs> well, I think I'm... I mean, yeah, I, I, you're welcome to say it, but I have to agree. Like, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like... It, I, I I suspect that it's fear driving it. You know, it's just like you. It's like feeling like you need to justify the fact that you spent time writing something. You know, though, like don't 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 come at me looking for an explanation. I was just supposed to do this. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I completely agree with that. That it's. I think sometimes, especially when maybe we're struggling with with writing or whatever our our chosen artistic expression is, you want to believe it's a calling because at that point, then you're not going to have to be like, well, maybe not only am I struggling with this, but this isn't even a calling for me. So, like, what am I doing? (laughs) That idea of it's your calling, it's what you're destined to do. I think maybe you can get yourself through those hard times better. Yeah. But yeah, I think sometimes it is just this idea of like, this is what I'm destined to do. So even though I haven't written anything in a while and I want to set my computer on fire, I still have to go back to it because this is my calling. Oh, interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a commitment or something. Yeah, like yeah. no one's asking me to do it, and I hate it. So <laughs> better do it then. Um, yeah, it's so true. Mm-hmm. But so I saw that. Uh, I read before that you had done some filmmaking, um, but do you feel like, I feel like your your fiction is cinematic. 
Would you say so? Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I appreciate that. That was something that like when I when I left filmmaking and went into fiction writing, I'm like, hopefully I can take that with me. Like some of the things that I, I learned and then it's a lot easier because you don't have the cast, the actors and everything. You just make them up in your head. So in that regard, it's a lot easier than, than filmmaking. Do you is there anything in particular you think that you did take from it? I like to set up a kind of a sense of place. I I don't think the Rust Maidens would probably have the kind of like description of Cleveland and the way that I set everything up if I hadn't had the filmmaking background, because Mm -hmm. I'm much more likely to, you know, sketch things out ahead of time of how things look. And I'm sure people who don't have a film background do that at times as well. But for me, that was the kind of skill that I would think of when I was trying to, you know, figure out a location you know, and, and how, how to shoot it and everything. And, and so I kind of took that and, you know, making these sketches and having this idea of like, what angle do I want to see this from? And so sort of taking the reader from that angle and, and how you're kind of walking through that area and what, what you're looking at and what you're physically seeing at that moment. Interesting. And did you, did you go back to Cleveland to write it or were you writing it from your memory of the place? I went back and forth with whether or not I should. I actually decided to write it from my memory of it because it's so much a type of story that's about memory and Mm -hmm. about the past and how things were rather than necessarily how they are. And so, because I did think about that. I even talked to my husband because we're we're a few hours away now. We live south of Pittsburgh. So it's about a three, three and a half hour drive to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. He and I talked about it. He's like, hey, you want to take a whole weekend? We can go out there. And then I decided as I I went into writing it, I'm like, you know what? I think I want this to be more these memories of it and and kind of have it almost be this sense of a slightly more dreamlike quality about it. Mm -hmm. And also... I mean, a lot. Two thirds of it takes place in 1980. So, I mean, I did look at pictures from more of that era of Cleveland, but that's not something. A lot of those things you're not going to be able to see now, anyway. So, it still felt like okay. Mm-hmm. But I think for a different project, you know, if if I were to be writing about a place that I could go there, if it was more based in today, I would probably want to to physically be there and physically see the space as opposed to with that one that I'm like. You know, I could have gone back and that would have been fine, but I, I liked the idea of that of being like, you know what, let's let's leave leave it in, in the past of my memories rather than trying to pull things out that are there now. Well, I think that that's, I think that's, uh, you know, a better, it's like a brave strategy for some sort of, for an artistic thing. But I think that's like the job is to like to create an impression of a place rather than to recreate it, right? So I think that whatever came to you most organically thinking about the place was what was supposed to go there and perhaps going back there might even have distracted from the the source of why you wanted to write the story exactly that, that was my concern that i would get wrapped up too much and being like because denton street isn't a real street the place where it happens doesn't real that that is not a street i even double checked because i wanted the street itself to be fictitious that way nobody would be like listen you just badmouthed my street in cleveland and i feel like i didn't think it existed but i checked there is there was no denton street in cleveland on uh google maps anyways and i exactly i wanted it to be more of this this kind of impression of the place rather than because you're right there is no no one can ever completely recreate a place entirely. It's always going to be through that lens of what you're bringing to it as a storyteller. And that's good. 
Mm. I think that that's how it needs to be. We want each story to have that unique flavor of that particular writer and that particular story. Mm. So I, I, I like that. I like what you're, what you're saying with that. I agree. Oh, cheers. It, it, it comes from having buried myself in research as a way of hiding from just having to write fiction. Like, <laughs> isn't that the truth? That, that is definitely something that can happen because I love research. I mean, I was in research when I was in grad school, and mm-hmm. I, I love doing it. But yes, you're also right. It can be a th- it can be a way of being like, oh, hey, that way I can do this rather than actually put the words to the page. So, because mm-hmm. like uh, by day I'm a process engineer, so I studied engineering, and you can't really take a systematic approach to making art. Although I've like I, I've come back from trying very hard with proof that it can't be done. So um, yeah. How do you go about ensuring that new stories are going to come out in your voice? Like, how do you? Because I feel like the way I've decided is like you just you read a lot, you read a lot, you read a lot, and then you just you write with none of that in your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, how do I do it? I don't know. Sometimes I still think of storytelling as being almost this magical process because mm-hmm. sometimes at the end of it, I, I had somebody over over this past weekend because I was in uh, Providence for Necronomicon and somebody asked me and how I came up with the idea for a story that I wrote about five years ago now. And I realized I, I couldn't remember anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was very strange to me that it was like, I wrote the story. I remember writing the story. I remember sending it out. I remember a rejection I got on it, but I can't remember exactly where the initial story idea came from anymore and so it does seem sometimes like it's it's a kind of magical process for me sometimes I think like if it to be in my voice I sometimes I like to read stuff aloud and Mm -hmm. if it flows as I'm reading it aloud that to me means that it's more in my voice or if it feels like it doesn't flow then I'm like okay something needs to be Mm -hmm. needs to be reworked here so I do read everything aloud I mean I even read not all in one night I don't think but I I read the whole novel aloud over, over time you know to make sure everything there flowed the way that I wanted it to wow yeah, it's so interesting. So you talked about this older story and um, you remember getting a rejection for it. And so I also... See, this is where I ramble. I am making a connection, I promise. But um, you you recently won the Stoker Awards. Yeah. Um, congratulations. And how, th- this, is, this is the point I'm making, is that obviously, I don't know, we all remember a lot of the rejections. You've just won this big award how how does it how does it fit into how you feel you're progressing as a writer how does it affect the way that you write does it at all you know in some ways it it almost makes me more nervous going forward because once you have something like that then it's like well now now I have to show that it wasn't just an anomaly that it Mm. wasn't just like oh I had this one book and it really was good and now I'm never going to have anything good again so it's kind of like feeding into that kind of writerly insecurity that I I think on some level we all have at times but that's definitely been been something that I'm like okay now I have to follow it up with something that that that's spectacular which is always scary and I I think in some ways that that makes it harder to write Mm. which I don't want to sound like I'm complaining like oh poor me I I won a Bram Stoker award but it is (laughs) something that you do want it to feel like you know a few years from now no one will be like why did that person win that award their writing's awful Mm. (laughs) you never want that to be how how it ends up going I mean although obviously every writer has their critics so clearly there's some people who don't even like this book but 
I do feel like in, in some ways it, it is, there is that. Also, it has made it so it's like, okay, there are people out there who are very supportive of, of the Rust Maidens and who have been very excited about it. So there's also this idea of, of once you know you have that kind of support in, you know, in the readership, that, you know, then makes it easier in some ways. So it's kind of like, it feels like a step forward and a step back at times that I, I was just, again, at Necronomicon this past weekend, I was on a panel and I said something and, you know, everybody there, you know, I have a few books, somebody else that was on the panel has a whole bunch of books and, and another person with one and one is still working on her first book. Mm-hmm. She has several short stories. Mm-hmm. And I made the statement of no matter what, you always feel like you're a new writer. You always feel like you're just getting started with this stuff. And I, I think all of us felt like that to some extent on, on that panel, even though we were all at very different stages of our careers at this point. But there is always the sense that you're still just getting started, no matter what kind of like accolades or how many books you have out. I mean, that's my experience and what I've heard from other people. Maybe somebody listening to this is like, I don't feel that way at all. Ladies. <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how I think it, it, it is for me, but it's like, okay. All right, like there's some great things that have happened, but I still, you know, just have to sit down and actually put the words on the page, which sometimes can be the hardest thing, even though it's the easiest at the same time. Oh, like I, for sure. I mean, I kind of expected something like that would have been your answer, and I think it's very reassuring. And um, you know, your your honesty about that is is very reassuring and uh, refreshing because I think um, you know, it's almost it's like something. It's like something that people need to keep hearing new people say over and over again. You know, it's like somebody new wins an accolade and you need this new person who just won it to go, tell me it's not working for you either, please. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, bit... it's true. I mean, I've even heard that, you know, in interviews with like Oscar winning actors and actresses, they'll be like, I thought it would make me feel so different. But at the end of the day, you're still you. You're still the same artist, no matter how many, you know, roles or books you have out or how mm-hmm. many awards on a shelf. You're, you're still you and you're still that writer and you still have to go through, if not the same process, then still some process to to have all of that happening as, as you know, whatever your artistic output is. Sure. I, I hope I didn't imply that you some, that, you know, you somehow had a responsibility to make other people feel better about not having won the Stoker Awards because I don't believe that at all. Um, (laughs) I think there's a lot of that too because I, I... I think we have to be careful that, you know, there's so much good work out there, basically. And so mm-hmm. not every great work that can't, comes out is going to, to win an award. And that doesn't mean that the stuff that wins is by default better than something else, even. It's just at that moment, it's, you know, what the zeitgeist is and what's exciting people at that moment. And that's, again, not taking away from my work or other work that's won awards. But mm-hmm. there's so much great work out there. And especially from small presses right now, there's so much good fiction coming out right now that, you know, we need we need 100 more awards to be able to, to <laughs> really give the accolades that truly are deserved. So, you know, there is that, too. You know, it's it's absolutely wonderful to 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 be acknowledged for your work especially you know we are all constantly working so hard mm-hmm. but there's also the sense that there's so much good stuff out there so mm-hmm. it's certainly it's certainly important to say that too well it, it's a it's a great opportunity to celebrate someone um mm-hmm. and i love i love seeing it happen great <laughs> I'm, I'm all and i'm uh, as you say i'm all for more people getting celebrated for sure um yeah how do you feel about the writing community? I suppose the horror writing community in, uh, in you know, to be more specific, do you feel like 
do you enjoy being among other writers? Do you feel like you want to help them out? I do. I, I very much do. I, I think the horror community, by and large, I mean, there's always going to be some rotten apples. You have to get that in there. But I think by and large, it's it's a really, really great community. I felt very welcomed. And I it makes it easier because I do think that writers... I would say small press writers, but I think writers in general, even if you have a book deal with one of the, one, you know, a literary agent and a book deal with one of one of the big publishers, it's important to support each other. I think that that, that really is a thing that you notice the writers who don't support anybody else, who don't share anybody else's work, who aren't celebrating other people's work. You notice that. And it, and it's, it's something that it's like, you know, we're all in this together, even though yes, we're, we're kind of competitors, but not really, because it's not one of these things that it's like, very few readers only read one book ever. Readers read mm-hmm. more than one book. So it's not really as competitive as I think some people want to make it. And I, I do think that it, it's a great community and it's it's easy to find people who's, who have work coming out that I'm excited about and I'm excited to share. I wish I had more time to read even more than I do. Mm. But even if I can't read everything that looks great, I can at least share it and get the word out there about it. Yeah, nice. Um, I... The, the way I feel about the competitiveness thing is I think just some people enjoy, some people are motivated by seeing it as a competition um, and they're welcome to see it as such if that motivates them, but I don't think it necessarily is. Um, and, you know... That's a really interesting point mm-hmm. about it. Some people, that's just their nature. Maybe they grew up, you know, in a competitive household or they played a lot of sports. And so mm-hmm. that that can motivate them to see it as a competition. I never thought about it like that, but I guess that that could be, that could absolutely be what it is for some people. I, I, I only really thought about it recently because I was like, uh, I just felt like I was being cast into the role of a competitor against other people that I just hadn't really asked for and didn't find it helpful because I, I was having a nice chat with them but you can feel that barrier coming up and I thought that's yeah. not that's not gel- that's not working with me and then you then you kind of feel like okay am I not am I not treating this properly but the truth is you have to kind of you have to come up with your own approach and you have to do what works for you and it sounds very generic and like good luck mate you know but it's, it's also the truth um it is yeah. it absolutely is and that's that's something that I always get upset about writing advice that doesn't include that. That doesn't include kind of a caveat of being like, Hey, this might not work for you. It worked for me because sometimes people want to be like, this is the only way to make a writing career. You've got to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. You've got to do these 10 things. And it's like, you know, maybe those 10 things did help the person who's writing that, or maybe Mm -hmm. they would help somebody else. But again, it is something that it's like, I always say mileage may vary. Like mm. what happens, you know, it, it may be mm. different for one person. And you're right. Some people, it, it might help them to stay motivated if they view it as being competitive. But I agree. I don't I don't want to see other writers as competition because that, that also gets very tiring, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. And it's also then it's not, it's not as, you know, it's not, you're not going to be able to celebrate other people's successes, which is, it's nice. It's nice to celebrate other people. It's nice to see other people doing well. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I, I feel like if you're in it, it seems like more of a competition to other people. Like I, I was watching this, uh, I was watching an interview with a director I liked and he said, oh, you know, I don't think that I'm in competition with other directors. And he, he pointed out some other, uh, some other film that had come out this year. And I just thought those films are completely different. Like it's so obvious to me, somebody who's not making films that you know you guys are not in competition that it's just 
it's just yet another way i think of the the voices in your head distracting you from making the difficult art it, it you know is it i'm going to bury myself in research so i don't need to do it or is it i'm going to you know waste time competing with people so i don't need to do it it's i i feel like no matter how you choose to see it if you're just going to write every day and read a lot you're going to get so good regardless of whatever it is you're choosing to motivate yourself you know yeah but you did bring up uh oh so yes i found this quote in your nightmare in, uh, nightmare magazine interview um i always how do you feel about being quoted back to yourself is it weird <laughs> I, i'm looking forward to seeing what quote it is because that also that interview is about four years old so i'm curious if i agree with my past self or not so go i want to oh, okay okay <laughs> the quote was um i always believed i'd someday find a group of people who would understand me um and my question is did you you know what's funny is I do remember that quote because I've thought about it and some days I'm like yes I think I have and other days I'm like I don't know mm -hmm. I would say yes I mean I I have to say yes at this point because I feel like if nothing else I've had so many people read the Rust Maidens and they they get it they they've gotten it they've gotten there I've had so many readers get so much nuance from the book that I honestly wrote in there being like I think this is just weird stuff that's in my own head and I'm putting it on a page because it's that catharsis mm -hmm. and I think it can work even if somebody doesn't get it and then people get it and I'm like okay I can't say that I'm really as alone as maybe I felt when I was you know this little goth teenager I don't I don't think maybe I'm I'm that alone so I do think that I found those people through through kind of almost like putting my writing out there as a beacon of being like hey if you're like me find me you know kind of thing and, mm -hmm. and again there are a lot of great people in the horror community so yes I feel like I found the people <laughs> mm. Well, you bring up an interesting point, which is I think that um, it was a comedian I was listening to said that audiences understand intent, which I thought was really interesting because how, you know, uh, it's so I think that's true of writing as well. It must be, you know, people people understand what is being implied, even if there's no surface level evidence that that's what's going on. Right. I think so. And I I. Again, I was on a panel this past week. I'm so sorry. I'm one of those people who are going to bring up like a, a convention over and over again. <laughs> but I was on a panel talking about Twilight Zone. And when I went back to think about what I liked about the Twilight Zone so much, a big thing was how much Rod Serling trusted his audience. He trusted that they would get it. Mm -hmm. He didn't like, you know talk down to them in any way he respected his audience that again that they they would understand the intent behind what he was doing mm -hmm. and i feel like that's one of the reasons that the twilight zone has, has lasted for as long as it has and that people still talk about it people still watch it and people still love it is because you know to trust your audience to get something i think is is very important so i would agree with that i do think that audiences get it especially you know, maybe not every audience member, and that's okay, because I also think that there's nothing out there that's for everyone, and that's fine. You don't have to like everything. But I do think when when a, a work of art finds its audience, they very much get the intent. They don't have to have everything spelled out for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and to your point about people not liking everything, you know, absolutely true. And I, I think the sooner you're honest about what you do and do, don't like as a writer, you improve so much faster, I think. Um <laughs> it's yeah. uh but i think that comes with uh again the time and the confidence because i think when you start the way i well if you start and you're a man i think in particular uh, though maybe i'm being biased against my own gender um you you say oh like what's the toughest book i can find okay let's read like infinite jest gravity's <laughs> rainbow uh ulysses by james joyce like unless i don't enjoy and understand these books then i obviously don't 
enjoy and understand literature. Um, at least that's why. I'm going to say Gravity's Rainbow because that's the first one I thought of because I'm I'm not a fan of it. It's just one of those books that I feel like you know you're expected to like it, so I love that you picked that. <laughs> I'm glad, yeah. But I mean, they they um yeah they do they do they crop up those you go on the most difficult books list. I I think I mean it's it's partly like I want you want a competitive advantage as a writer, but it's also you want. It's like you're wanting to earn the respect of people before you've written anything as well. It's horse before the cart or something, you know. Yes, um, yes I, I agree with that. It's this idea of like, well, if I can get this, this thing that's really, it's called really difficult, then I'm going to be able to write anything. And it's like, eh, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it works that way. Also, because, you know, not everybody likes those those books, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think um yeah I I think I I've definitely improved it by just being like oh gave it fifty pages nope see ya like yes oh, I oh. actually think that that's the thing that, that can help you more as a writer than anything is recognizing that you're not enjoying something stop reading and if you don't want to life is short you don't have you're not gonna have time to read every book anyway so why read something you don't want to but then also examining what it is about it that maybe you don't like or that you you know you don't want to do yourself even if it's a classic. You know, mm-hmm. if it's not working for you, why isn't it working? And being able to look at that and and avoid those kind of pitfalls and in, in your own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there books that you return to? <sighs> yes, definitely. I I very much return to a lot of Shirley Jackson in particular. We have always lived in the castle. I I love Ray Bradbury. His short fiction collection, The October Country, is one that I go back to, and I go back a lot actually to Sylvia Plath's work. I, I always feel like in her own way, she was kind of a horror writer because she's writing about such like horrifying human experiences. And even some of her like imagery has this mm-hmm. kind of feel of of being horror, mm-hmm. even though it's not overtly genre by any stretch, but it definitely has that kind of feel. So that's, those are three that really jump out at me. I'm, I'm sure there's others that I'm, I'm forgetting. But. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, those are, um, yeah, I've seen you bring them up before. That's a good sample. Mm-hmm. I think, um, if anyone ever asked me about a favorite book, I forget the name of every book I've ever read. So that was actually <laughs> pretty impressive. Mm. Yeah, yeah that, that can be hard because even if you take away a feeling from things, sometimes like you just draw a blank of like, it's that book that was really good. I've read it. You'd probably like it. I can't tell you anything else about it. <laughs> yeah. Or, or for me, it's like, oh, I loved it when I was 19 years old. Um, mm-hmm. You should read it today. Oh, no, wait, don't do that. It's like, <laughs> I was 19. <laughs> Speaking of like writing, like thinking of things from memory, that that's definitely true. Every once in a while, I'll go back to something I loved when I was a teenager, or even in my early 20s. And it'll be a book or a movie and you go back to it and it, it almost feels ruined. And you're like, I should have left it in memory because it was better in, in memory. Although every once in a while, I'll have the opposite experience. There'll be something that I won't think will hold up or something I didn't like when I was younger. And I feel like, you know, now I, now I get some of the nuance of it or some of the themes of it resonate with me more or, or just that I'm different and I like it better. So sometimes that can work, you know, the opposite way, but yes, there are times that I've definitely had, like, I love that. And then like, it'll be like a movie and I'll show it to my husband. And the whole time I'm sitting there almost like turning <laughs> red at the face, like, this is terrible. I was like telling him how good this was. And at the end of it, he's going to be like, ah, uh, and I'm going to be like, yeah, I know I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I think also like on the flip side of that, like what I did is if you try to read difficult books too early when you're not ready for them by the time you are ready for them you've just filled it with bad memories so <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> that, that then you're so like against it by the point that maybe you would have really liked it but it's kind of almost like 
corrupted if not outright ruined (laughs) totally (laughs) how dare you reassure me you know that i'm ready for it like (laughs) exactly when when you give me so many bad memories um in the in the beginning of your short story collection um something stuck out in your dedication you have a kind of ironic dedication to people who who put you down um which i thought was really lovely um lovely is that the right words you know interesting and and um and daring that's interesting and daring i'll call it um but the way i kind of feel about people now that i've like i'm in my 30s is like you can understand them you can understand their weird behavior really well if it's like what were their parents like or did somebody bully them in high school and it's they cling to it um in a way i find really difficult to uh not forgive but like understand you know it's been so long um but you 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 can't avoid those things staying with you right yeah i i think that with time you can like you said there there's an empathy there there might not be an outright forgiveness for it or at least you're not like saying it's okay but as you get older you can be like I understand how this happens. You know, it's not say, it's not excusing it. It's not siding with it by any means, but it's having a better understanding of, of how people end up where they end up in life. Like you said that, it, you know, if they have parents that, 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 that bullied them or they were bullied and, and seeing how, how those early experiences really do shape people forever. And that's, that's something that as I've gotten older, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm in my thirties as well. And you really start recognizing how much things that you thought, you know, when you were 18, oh, I'm going to be able to get away from this stuff. And it follows you, things follow you. And it can be very difficult to be able to unpack that as you get older and be like, okay, this is, this is what's happening. Or this is, this is why it's ended up this way. Or this is why I have this immediate reaction to something that, that reminds me of something else that, that maybe isn't even related, but we, we make those connections connections again in our memory and 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 how we you know face the world and deal with the world so mm. yeah <laughs> do, you, do you feel like do you feel like stories help do they help when you write them do they help you understand people that's what I think I'm trying to do I feel like in a lot of my work it's trying to understand myself obviously but I'm trying to understand the world and make sense of things and and experiences I've had or experiences in particular if I've had them and and I've seen other people maybe talk about things like that or something that I know isn't just a weird me thing although you know I've written stories like that too but I do think that when you know that this is something that maybe is an experience and and trying trying to somehow capture that or express something about that or write through that in some way to make sense of it Mm -hmm. do you feel like uh this is my last question by the way um so (laughs) thank you so much for your time it's been so insightful um do you feel like uh, life experience or practice improves writing the most? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Wow. But isn't practice in and of itself a life experience, you know? So I, maybe I'm just going to, that's kind of cheating on the answer. But I would say life experience because I think practice comes from that to begin with. So is there anything specific you want to let us know about? Anything that's coming up? Any any works 
on the go? I have my chat book. It's my big release for 2019. And it's coming out from Nightscape in November. It's called The Invention of Ghosts. Mm-hmm. It's a limited edition charitable chat book. So a third of all of the proceeds go to charity. It's going to be supporting the National Aviary in Pittsburgh. And that story is about ghosts and friendship and the occult. And it's like a whole bunch of things that I, I love and hopefully readers will love it as well. So you can get, you can find out more about that on my website mm-hmm. and also on Nightscape Press's site. Great. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was really fun. And like you said, this was so insightful. I like I always love interviews that afterwards I'm like taking down notes and still thinking about some of the ideas discussed. So thank you for that. This, this was really fun. So that was Gwendolyn Kist. I do hope you'll check out that chat book when it comes out in November. Uh, once again, her other books are And Her Smile Will Untether the Universe. It's her collection of short stories, which is out with Journal Stone. Pretty Mary's All in a Row, a novella out with Broken Eye Books. The Rust Maidens, her debut novel, uh, which recently won the Stoker Award, that's out with Trepidatio Publishing. All excellent. I do hope that you will check them out. As always, if you are a reader, writer, editor, uh, listener, anyone with anything to say to me about this podcast, you can always do so using losingthepotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all for me for now. So until next time, bye bye.